Hello and welcome to the podcast on Broadwater Parish in Worthing, a thriving Anglican church based in the parish of Broadwater, West Sussex in Worthing. We are one church across three sites and Christians have worshipped for over a thousand years at our church at St Mary's. This podcast features sermons from our services and interviews and other episodes and you can find out more by going to broadwaterparish.org.uk. Thanks for listening and we hope you enjoy this most recent episode of the podcast. Today's reading is taken from Matthew 22 verses 1 to 14, the parable of the wedding banquet. Jesus spoke to them again in parables saying, The kingdom of heaven is like a king who prepared a wedding banquet for his son. He sent his servants to those who had been invited to the banquet to tell them to come, but they refused to come. Then he sent some more servants and said, Tell those who have been invited that I have prepared my dinner. My oxen and fattened cattle have been slaughtered, and everything is ready. Come to the wedding banquet. But they paid no attention and went off one to his field, another to his business. The rest seized his servants, ill-treated them and killed them. The king was enraged. He sent his army and destroyed those murderers and burned their city. Then he said to his servants, The wedding banquet is ready, but those I invited did not deserve to come. So go to the street corners and invite to the banquet anyone you find. So the servants went out into the streets and gathered all the people they could find, the bad as well as the good, and the wedding hall was filled with guests. But when the king came in to see the guests, he noticed a man there who was not wearing wedding clothes. He asked, How did you get in here without wedding clothes, friend? The man was speechless. Then the king told the attendants, Tie him hand and foot, and throw him outside into the darkness, where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. For many are invited, but few are chosen. When I'm uh, scrolling through films to watch on TV of an evening, I rarely look at the uh, comedy section. Uh, From my experience, they're either a bit silly or tasteless, but there is one comedy film that I've seen more than once that I really like. It was, um, it was made in 1991, and it's about a wedding, which happened to be the year that I married Sarah, in fact, 1991. It's called Father of the Bride. As some of you may have seen that, this particular version was with Steve Martin and Kimberly Williams. And the reason I find it funny is that it is so true. When, he, uh, when the father was shown um, a leaflet of potential cakes, he looked at the price of the cake and said, my first car didn't cost that much. Well, with four daughters, I know a bit about weddings, and one of the things which is uh, perhaps hardest of all, of all the things that you ever do, is who are you going to invite? Which means, who are you going to leave out? That is a huge problem. It's stressful. It's expensive. Everything is costly. 
And of course, there is the how much do you love your daughter premium on top. Perhaps the most problematic aspect is who to invite. Are further removed family members to be chosen ahead of closer friends? Where can you put the cutoff point? There has to be a ceiling on numbers. Who sits at what table? Does everyone know at least one other person? Is there a potential flashpoint combination of guests? Let me tell you a bit about weddings and marriages in New Testament times. They're different to our practices. We need to do this, not just for today's talk, but any time you look at the Bible with anything to do with marriages, you need to know these things. So here we are, an education lesson for you. Marriage was almost universal amongst Jews. Were the disciples married? Almost certainly. Was Jesus married? Not yet. More about that later. Marriages were generally, generally arranged by relatives. That's still the case today in many cultures. They would say to us, you fall in love, marry, and repent at leisure. We marry and learn to, lo to love. Now, we would not swap our system, I'm sure, but the many biblical references to marriage will be based on theirs. The arrangement, sometimes through a matchmaker called a sadshun, would be regarded as the engagement and could, in theory, and for a family alliance, take place soon after birth when the gender is known. So, to be clear, being engaged was to be earmarked for a potential match. Mostly, though, a first cousin was preferred. No concerns there about inbreeding. Marriages could take place at a very young age, say 11 or 12. Betrothal was the equivalent of our engagement, but ceremonial and more binding. It generally lasted a year, could only be terminated by divorce, and had no sexual privileges. Mary was betrothed to Joseph. She was not married to him, so there was no sexual privileges, and Joseph was obviously very distressed about the pregnancy. But she could still be divorced, even though she wasn't married, just in case you were confused about that in the story. The bridegroom's family would finance the best celebration they could afford, and the bride was paid for. More about that later. The wedding itself was a protracted affair by our standards, lasting for anything up to a week for those who could afford it. After the initial feast, the couple would retire to their room, and the marriage was consummated. The couple remained with the wedding guests throughout the week, and there was no honeymoon. Given the duration, it was difficult to estimate, but considered a serious breach of etiquette to run out of food or wine. This disaster was averted by Jesus at a wedding in Cana. In our reading, we have a lavish wedding. A king is putting on a wedding feast for his son. It's all about the son. 
The guest list is all prepared. Who could possibly refuse such an opportunity? Well, apparently all of them. The first invitation was for those invited to make their preparations, but there was no interest. The king did not give up, but made his preparations anyway and sent a follow-up message to say that everything was prepared and ready for them. This time they did not actually refuse, but rudely ignored the invitation completely. Some even turned on the servant, the servant messengers, and killed them. Would that really happen? Surely not. Parables are supposed to be realistic. Well, Jesus was addressing the priests and elders, as mentioned in verse 23 of the previous chapter. He was talking about them. They knew that very well. Verse 45 of the previous chapter says, When the chief priests and Pharisees heard Jesus' parables, they knew he was talking about them. So what about the killed messengers then? The prophets had proclaimed for generations that the promised Messiah would come with his invitation. What happened to those messengers? Hebrews 11, 36 to 38. Some faced jeers and flogging and even chains and imprisonment. They were put to death by stoning. They were sawed in two. That happened to Isaiah, by the way. They were killed by the sword. They went about in sheepskins and goatskins, destitute, persecuted, and mistreated. The world was not worthy of them. So this parable is not just some fanciful theoretical tale. It already happened and determined the future. The Jews had refused the invitation and missed the boat. In last week's parable, the tenants of the vineyard, Jesus said in chapter 21, verse 43, Therefore I tell you that the kingdom of God will be taken away from you and given to the people who will produce its fruit. Here again, the Jews had refused the invitation to the wedding feast and the invitation would be given to others. Verse 9 said, So go to the street corners and invite to the banquet anyone you find. Who were these anyone people then? They were the Gentiles, you and me. Maybe you didn't know you were on the guest list. Well, you are. Let's make this clear. The parable's message is that the Jews rejected the invitation and the Gentiles are invited. The message is not that the Jews rejected the invitation so the Gentiles were invited. You are not second best. Your invitation is not sent to you with a Jew's name crossed out. Not all Jews have rejected the message. Jesus was a Jew, as were his disciples, and it's self-evident that not all Gentiles accept the invitation, far from it. But the Jewish religious leaders failed to see what they've been eagerly waiting for. There's none so blind as those who will not see. There are two verses that tend to be skipped over, verse 7 and verse 10. We will not skip over them. Verse 7, 
he sent his army and destroyed those murderers and burned their city. God is patient time and time again, but he is also holy and not to be messed with. The Jerusalem temple and all it represented aligned itself against Jesus, which is a stance of self-destruction. It brought Jesus to tears. Luke 19, verses 41 to 42. As Jesus approached Jerusalem and saw the city, he wept over it and said, If you, even you, had only known on this day what would bring you peace. But now it is hidden from your eyes. Mark 13, verse 1. As Jesus was leaving the temple, one of his disciples said to him, Look, teacher, what massive stones, what magnificent buildings. Do you see all these buildings, replied Jesus? Not one stone here will be left on another. Every one will be thrown down. In AD 70, the Romans completely destroyed Jerusalem and the temple. Verse 10 says, gather the bad as well as the good. Jesus said in Luke 5.32, I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. Nobody merits an invitation. It's a rather strange ending to the parable. I and many others believe that is because it's not a parable, but two As it stands, they run together, and it seems rather unfair on the hapless guest. There he was, minding his own business on the streets, filling in some potholes or whatever, and just as he takes a break for his cheese sandwich, he's oiked off to a stupendous wedding feast that feels he feels way out of his league. He's approached by an important-looking person who calls him friend, which is nice, But his own clothing is being called into question. No wonder he was speechless. Without further ado, he's trussed up, thrown out into the darkness where is weeping and gnashing of teeth. He doesn't want to gnash his teeth. He just wants to wrap them around his cheese sandwich. As a single parable, this doesn't work. Some have referred to this as a parable within a parable or a double parable. But I feel this still leaves confusion. Things change from verse 11. Spurgeon says, Apparently the parable of the marriage feast would have been complete without this addition, but there was infinite wisdom in appending this sequel. He calls it a sequel. I feel it's even more than that. He entitles it The Wedding Garment. William Barclay treats it as a separate parable and cause it the scrutiny of the king. Let's be clear about it. The text of your Bible is inspired. The headings are not. They were put there way, way later, over a thousand years later, two thousand years later. Those headings are not inspired. So you look at it again, regard it as two parables, because it's two messages, two completely clear messages. We've looked at the first, we'll look at the second. Verse 11 onwards, it takes on a different complexion. Guests have been invited to a wedding. It was sometimes a custom for the clothing to be provided by the host, mostly as a leveler. 
This would certainly be the case at an important wedding, such as that of a prince. Washing facilities would be available and garments handed out before entry to the marriage feast. This presents a completely different scenario. Why did the man not accept the gracious gift of the wedding garments? What made him think it was perfectly acceptable to do what he chose? He had no answer to this. He was speechless. In other words, without excuse. This was blatant disrespect of the bridegroom and could not be tolerated, hence his expulsion. Now, this additional parable is about what we should wear, at all times really, but we need to look closely in the spiritual mirror when we enter God's presence. In a sense, coming into church is a kind of dummy run for this. I'm not talking about literal clothes that you choose to wear. You can wear what you like, as long as it's not deliberately disrespectful. God looks upon the heart. What clothing does God require you to wear? Well, are you wearing the garment of preparation? Have you cleared away all unwanted distractions? Have you read and reflected on the passage beforehand? You really should. I expect my house group to do their homework. Are you wearing the garment of prayerfulness? Have you prayed that God will speak to you personally? Are you wearing the garment of expectation? Are you open to God's message and receptive to its implications? Have you come with your own agenda or are you open to God's? Are you wearing the garment of humble penitence? Have you repented of those things that you know displease God and which will hinder his interaction with you? Are you wearing the garment of faith? Do you believe that God is all-powerful and all-loving and knows the plans he has for you? Are you wearing the garment of kindness? Are you alert to the needs of your brothers and sisters in Christ? A loving word and a listening ear are great healers. Are you wearing the garment of service? Are you looking for ways to enhance and bless God's family from your resources and by what you do? The parables of the kingdom choose to use weddings as an illustration of the ultimate wedding feast in heaven. The Gospels mention the word bridegroom 12 times in total. Hang on a minute, I hear you ladies say. What about the bride? Fair question. Here she is, mentioned just once in John 3.29. The bride belongs to the bridegroom. There you are, ladies. Happy with that? No, you're not. The thing is, whether you are male or female, we are all, as Christians, the church, the bride of Christ. One day there will be the wedding feast in heaven to surpass all others. All eyes will be on the resplendent bridegroom, mirrored in almost every creature in creation. It's always the male that's the pretty one, not the female. You look at a mallard, beautiful, drab old female running along behind. The bridegroom, resplendent. We know who the bridegroom is. 
The bride of Christ, the church, will be ready wearing clothes of righteousness given to them because the bridegroom has paid for them. Revelation 19, verse 7. The wedding of the Lamb has come and the bride has made herself ready. So yes, Jesus was not only born to die, but also to marry. His bride being his church. And yes, he has paid a very heavy bride price. They're familiar vows, but they'll be largely redundant. Better or worse, there is no worse. Richer or poorer, there is no poorer. In sickness or in health, there is no sickness. Till death us do part, there is no death. Times may be very different these days, but ladies, I have to break it to you. You will have to obey. The final verse is a theological study, all on its own. For many are invited and few are chosen. We are not delving into that now. We'll be here until tea time. What we can say, without ducking it, is that if you feel that Jesus is inviting you to be part of his church and his church family, and you accept that invitation, you will discover that you've been expected all along. One last thing, a church notice. We have spoken of spiritual garments worn in church. Please don't leave them at the door in a heap when you leave. Please take them with you and make good use of them at all times. Amen.